episode 132, Magic Seeds. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a May 4th, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Every culture has a creation story. Kansas is no different. As legend goes, in 1874, a handful of meager German immigrants fled Russia and headed to Kansas. With them, they smuggled a special type of wheat seed. Flash forward 100 years, Kansas is the nation's leading producer of wheat and breadbasket to the world. Join Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine a bottle of this magic seed and dare to challenge this highly regarded story. Then we go behind the scenes at Grinter Place, a Victorian home near Kansas City, to find out how NASCAR and croquet are helping preserve the oldest home in Wyandotte County. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we commemorate the outbreak of the Civil War by connecting White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the Articles of Secession. In 1860, South Carolina kicked off the Secession Palooza when it published a declaration that fractured the Union. Did White have a Confederate ancestor that shared his literary skill and helped draft this long-winded document? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Magic Seeds. Hello, Mom. Hello, Nikayla. So today we are going to talk about a small glass bottle. It's just a regular little kind of medicine bottle looking yep. bottle. Clear glass with a cork in it, cork stopper. Um, but it contains wheat seed. Mm-hmm. And a label affixed to the exterior of the bottle indicates that it is turkey red wheat from the Ukraine and um, what used to be southern Russia. And it looks old, but sometimes appearances are deceiving, right? Right. It's a clear glass bottle. And it's a bottle that's just containing some seeds, some wheat seeds. kind of right. odd. Okay, so what is turkey red wheat, and why is it so special? Well, turkey red wheat seed is um, it is a particular variety of wheat seed. Um, wheat, as you know, is a grass, um, and it's grown in a lot of places. It's kind of grown in temperate climates. Um, but what's interesting about wheat is it can be it can be bred to to kind of fit a variety of climates. Um, In fact, most modern wheat breeds in Kansas derive from that turkey red variety. Hmm. Um, So you ask, well, wheat is wheat. How does wheat, uh, how can it vary? Well, it can vary pretty dramatically. For one thing, um, stem length, how tall the wheat is, is important. 
mm-hmm. that's something that you can control. Um, you can have different varieties grow, grow at different heights. Why is it important? Well, today, most people want very short wheat right. because it doesn't, it's not impacted by the weather so much. It can't be blown mm-hmm. over by the wind or washed over by rain. Back in the day, uh, tall straw was probably a good idea because you had a lot of livestock that you had to provide bedding for. Berry content, like the seeds, also called berries. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a variety in how much protein is in that, mm-hmm. um, what color it is, how, uh, and how it reacts to different uh, insects or different diseases. And also what impacts the varieties is moisture levels and seasonal planting. So like I was talking about, wheat that we know today actually uh, did not come from North America. It came from... It came from Western Asia, so in the Fertile Crescent. So the first people planting wheat were people in the Middle East, actually. Farmers had been kind of subconsciously, I guess maybe, breeding wheat for some time for specific traits. But in fact, it was probably about the 19th century that they really started to figure out that they could actually kind of engineer wheat for different climates. Mm -hmm. Um, Turkey red is what's considered a hard red winter wheat. Um, and so what that means is it's a harder, it's got more protein to it, and it's, and it's a harder seed. So it's also resistant to diseases such as rust, and it's got high protein content. And of course, you're thinking turkey red has nothing to do with the bird and everything to do with the country. <laughs> oh, it doesn't have anything to do with Thanksgiving. Right. So um, turkey, part of the Fertile Crescent, mm-hmm. is probably... One of the first places that people started to figure out, early farmers started to figure out how to to create specific wheat breeds. They mm-hmm. start they began to domesticate what was wild wheat at the time, mm-hmm. um, and so so it's very desirable just because its characteristics make it hardy, make it able to grow in our climate. Exactly, it's well suited to the climate in Kansas mm-hmm. and the and the um, planting techniques used in Kansas. Okay, so. The wheat is a very important crop in our state. We're not quite sure how it got here. Um, can you tell us some of the theories about how this type of wheat came to Kansas? Right. So this is probably the most interesting thing about this wheat bottle, and in fact, wheat in Kansas in general, is um, how did it get here? It's kind of a creation story. Um, <laughs> and I know that sounds ridiculous, but in a way, it's a bit of a creation story for yeah. Kansas. And we'll get down to the specifics of it, but... Like every good creation story, nobody knows where it really came from. (laughs) Nobody knows if it's true or not. So it kind of starts out with really two groups, and one in particular we're interested in. There's two groups of Germans that are living in Russia. Mm -hmm. One of them is a group of Mennonites, and the other one is a group of Roman Catholics. Mm -hmm. So what are Germans doing in Russia? Um, Russia offered offered incentives. They wanted people who were well-versed in um, harvesting wheat or uh, well-versed in farming, Mm -hmm. they wanted them to come to Russia. This was in a time period when Russia was trying to modernize. So they were recruiting. And they brought in in farmers from Germany who were very efficient. Because what? They're German. They're efficient. That's what they do. Indeed. (laughs) Um, So one of the ways to entice them, particularly the Mennonites, was Mennonites who are pacifists, they could offer them incentives like, you can't be drafted for war. You won't have to fight wars in Russia. Mm -hmm. And the Mennonites said, great, that's awesome. We'll go over. They go over there, and they start farming. 
Eventually, the policy in Russia changes, and it becomes hostile towards what are essentially the foreign, the foreign, uh, a group of foreigners who have become quite wealthy and quite successful.、Mm-hmm. So it's time for the Germans decide it's time for maybe a, for us to go find a greener pasture somewhere. <laughs> Literally, <laughs>、um, and so they go looking. And at the same time, we have the American West is opening. Railroads are. Spanning out across the country, and what do railroads need the most? They need stuff to ship on their railroads. They need to build an economy, and how do they do that? They get a bunch of land from the government, and they start selling it or giving it away to immigrants from foreign countries. And what's really handy, what's really brilliant, is they decide to bring in people, farmers. Who live in climates that are similar to Kansas,、mm-hmm. and some of those climates are in the Ukraine or in the Volga River Valley in in Russia. So they send German recruiters out to Germany. They bring in these Mennonites,、um, and with them, as the story goes, they bring Turkey red wheat, and it is planted in Kansas and becomes hugely successful.、Mm-hmm. Nice story, right? Lovely. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, this this bottle of wheat、um, is it one of the original containers that the Mennonites brought to Kansas? Right, good question. Because you look at it and it looks oldie timey. It looks like、yeah. something that was brought with them. Yeah, like the labels all yellowed. And- right, and part of the and part of the folklore too is that, and specifically,、um, there's people that make references to them. Uh, that that the wheat was brought over in kitchen crocks and that it was brought、mm-hmm. over in trunks.、Mm-hmm. Um, so it's plausible that you know maybe it was brought over in a medicine bottle too. <laughs> so you look at the bottle and you, that's what you kind of think. You kind of think that it was something that was brought from Russia to the U.S.、Mm-hmm. Well, then you start digging a little bit deeper and you realize that it kind of had a different function. The first wheat crop, according to legend. Uh, the first crop of Turkey red wheat was planted in 1874. That's when the Mennonites arrived in bulk in Kansas, and they planted this big crop. So, in 1974, Kansas celebrated the Kansas Wheat Centennial, 100 years after the planting. It was a big deal across mm-hmm, the state. Mm-hmm.、Uh, there was a wheat queen elected in Belleville, Kansas. There was actually、uh, the U.S. Postal Service issued a commemorative stamp for the occasion. There was a highway named the. Kansas Wheat Centennial Memorial Highway, but best of all, there was a reproduction of the Liberty Bell made from wheat which straw, which is amazing. Which is amazing. <laughs>、um, so、and、all these、exists. things still exist. You can still see it today. All these things are happening, and in fact, the sort of the epicenter of this whole centennial takes place in Gossel, Kansas, which is in Marion County, Kansas. As I talked about, there was two groups: there was Mennonites, and there was the Volga Germans.、Mm-hmm. The Mennonites settled. The bulk of them in Marion County, Kansas, and Harvey County, Kansas, kind of south central Kansas. Right. But Gossel is really the focal point because the folklore all feeds back to this group of Mennonites.、Um, so to sort of preserve their heritage, they wanted to build a wheat museum,、mm-hmm. um, probably to house that giant wheat, wheat <laughs> Liberty Bell. I don't know.、Uh, so to raise funds, they sold off kind of tokens. One of them being bottles of the famed Turkey Red Wheat. Okay. Yeah. So, because if you think about it, like one little bottle, that's kind of a kink in the story, because one、yeah. little bottle of wheat is not going to establish、right. an entire, you know, crop keep dynasty. That, keep that in your mind, because you're onto something here. We'll、yeah. get to it. Okay. So, one of the theories you mentioned about how Turkey Red got to Kansas 
involve the Mennonites, bringing it here in Kitchen Crocs and in the family trunks. Isn't that a, isn't um, that a great story? Yeah. So how much we Just in case feed, you wanted to snack along the way. <laughs> or leave a trail like Hansel and Gretel. How much wheat seed would it take to establish Kansas's most successful crop? Uh, like I said, I don't think this bottle holds enough, but would a trunk even hold enough? No. <laughs> like I said, it's the creation story. But what's right. interesting is it's a fairly unchallenged creation story. It's published in textbooks. Mm-hmm. National Geographic did an article that made that statement. The New Yorker had an article that made that statement. And you can go to Wikipedia today and you can look up wheat. You can look up turkey red wheat and you can find and you'll find that it was brought to Kansas by uh, Mennonites from Russia. Some of the components of the argument against it is in the 1874, German immigrants cultivated 200,000 acres of land and planted up to 50,000 acres of wheat in the first year that they were here. Wow. That is a lot of crock pots and a lot of trunks. (laughs) You couldn't possibly do that. No. Um, And this is this to me. This is the most definitive issue: is that personal diaries from some of the Mennonites who immigrated here. uh, There's entries that reference that one of the first things they did when they arrived to Kansas was they bought seed wheat for their crops. Yes. There's no need to buy seed wheat for your crops. Yeah. If you've brought, you know, a whole yeah. a whole bunch of it in your crock. Right. What a waste of money. Right. <laughs> so so you're like, where you know, where did that myth come from? So uh, there was a historian from the University of Kansas. Uh, there was one in the 1940s, another one later in the 1970s and 80s that tracked it down to Bethel College, a grad student. One of his teachers was trying to find out where the origin of the story came from, told his students to go home, talk to the old people in their towns, and find out if it's true or not. So this Bethel College grad student goes home, talks to an old lady in town um, in 1927, and she claims, I love this, she claims that she was instructed by her father to go to the bin, to the wheat bin, because they're getting ready to leave the country, and pick out the best seed from the bin, one by one by hand. What? And load it in the crock so that it be so that it be taken over. And according to this lady, she picked out two gallons of wheat seed. That sounds more like a punishment for child <laughs> right. <laughs> industry. So I think it's kind of interesting because that indicates, if it's true, indicates, you know, how we had talked about farmers were tinkering around with kind of selective breeding. Right. This is an example of it. Okay. But the problem is, is like she picked out two gallons in Russia. Uh-huh. They're not really using the gallon system in Russia. Oh. So. Well, maybe she was converting and guesstimating. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? <laughs> so the bottom line is, is there's some, some pretty sketchy origins to this story. Mm-hmm. The Mennonites, the German Russians that came here, made the crop hugely successful in Kansas. Sure. Um, they, they were able to produce record amounts of wheat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to say it's not true, but I'm just saying there's a lot of indicators that say it's probably unlikely. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that we get caught up in a creation story because it's very romantic. But in reality, the actual story that they, you know, started this crop that turned into, I mean, it essentially made Kansas the number one wheat-producing state in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's amazing in and of itself. You don't need much more of a sensationalist story to be impressed, you know. Wheat is big business in Kansas. During harvest, Massive high-tech machines invade wheat fields and efficiently remove millions of bushels of seed. In 2000, 
Agco, a vast global manufacturer of agricultural equipment, established a plant in Wichita, just a few miles from the town of Nickerson, where the company began almost 90 years ago. That is the subject of today's Kansas Quiz. Name the three Kansas brothers that pioneered the development of the self-propelled harvester and founded a company that is today synonymous with harvesting. I'll return in a few moments with the answer. Constructed in 1857, Grinter Place is the oldest home in Kansas City, Kansas. Moses Grinter and his wife, Annie, a Lenape Indian, built the home on a bluff overlooking the Kansas River. Together, they established a lucrative business that began with a ferry crossing. In 1971, the Kansas Historical Society assumed ownership of Grinter Place. Today, we talk to Public Affairs Officer Teresa Jenkins about recent revitalization efforts that are beginning to bear fruit at this state historic site. Good morning, Teresa. Good morning. On May 21st, Grinter Place is hosting a garden party and a croquet tournament. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about these events and help me understand why a garden party and a croquet tournament? Well, why not, Ma? <laughs> um, Grinter has a great lawn. Um, they have they have nice grounds there. They're right on the overlooking the the river, and because of that great soil that they have there, it's a great place to farm. In fact, the Grinters did farm there. They had an apple orchard. We know that they raised livestock, but they also did a lot of farming. And so we're going to try to not create a big farm, but we're going to try to recreate the Grinter Garden as it could have been Mm -hmm. when Moses and Annie lived there. And to do that, we need to bring in plants. And since we don't have a lot of budget for that, we're going to invite the community or, or the entire Kansas City community to come and participate in this spring garden party how they can participate is to bring a native plant. And if if they're not sure what is native to the area, um, they can just contact the site administrator, Joe. Mm -hmm. He'll tell you what kind of plants he's looking for. Um, But these are things like a a butterfly plant, things that would have been growing in Kansas at that time. So if you bring that, you get a discount on admission. Um, The admission event, uh, the event admission is $5 or $3 if you bring the plant. And the croquet tournament, there's a um, $5 registration discount. Um, so you'll pay ten dollars instead of fifteen if you mm-hmm. if your team brings a plant. So part part of the event is really to help strengthen the plant base for this garden uh, and to play croquet. It's something that we just you know we don't do a lot of, and, no. and at least not in this part of the country. People of that time period in other parts of the country were playing croquet. Um, and, and and across the pond, as they say. Mm-hmm. And so even if you don't know how to play, we'll give you the rules. Um, we'll provide all the equipment so you don't have to have your oh, own Oh, nice. Own Not stuff. everybody has a croquet set. No, anymore. I don't have a, a set of wickets myself. So. <laughs> no, that's. I think it's really good because um, Grinter Place, it's a, it is a... A historic home. It's it's pretty stunning. If people haven't seen it before, um, it, it's got a sort of gone with the wind quality to it. It does. It's like and, a small terrace. And it sits up on a bluff overlooking the river. And now it sits kind of in an industrial part or what has become uh, an industrial part of Kansas City. But it's on a pretty decent amount of acreage. So it looks sort of uh, palatial. I it guess. does. If you're if you're driving around and you don't know it's there, and you you glance up on the hill, it's kind of a what what is that and what is it doing here? It is the oldest home in Wyandotte County, 
and, and, it, and it has the look of, of something that you know, has been there for a while, but it, because of the rehabilitation, it has a fresh look to it too, and hopefully once we add this garden and, and get some other things established at the site, uh, it, it'll be something that really draws people mm-hmm. So speaking of the re- rehabilitation of the building, roughly five years ago, the building was actually boarded up and closed. Uh, today, we're seeing croquet tournaments going on. We're seeing garden parties. Can you tell us a bit, little bit about the physical transformation of the building and sort of the transformation of the institution that runs the building? Absolutely. Um, because of its location, being so close to the Speedway, close to Legends, Grinner Place is really poised to be in the center of a tourist mecca for Kansas City in the mm-hmm. future. And just to qualify this, what the Speedway, uh, what these places are, is there is there's Kansas City proper, you mm-hmm. know, that sits right on the border, and that's um, that's downtown Kansas City. And within the last fifteen to twenty years, um, with the construction of the Speedway, Kansas City has begun to sprawl to the west, and and that is the new Kansas City. That's where all the development is going on. And that's where a lot of people head on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Legends is a kind of a, a, an outdoor uh, mall instead of, you know, the, tr- the malls of the 80s and 90s where everything was built in one building and er- all the storefronts faced into an interior corridor. It's this new turn-of-the-century outdoor kind of mall where mm-hmm. all your, it's like a plaza and you're walking and there's opportunities to enjoy nature and, and other things that are, that are built around it. And Legends has become a really hopping place mm-hmm. <laughs> for Kansas City. So Grinter Place is not far from these two attractions. And so we think that in the future, uh, if this continues to build, Grinter Place is going to be right there in the middle of it all. So because of that, um, the state decided to work with some private partners, the um, Junior Lake of Kansas City, Kansas, and the Grinter Place Friends have long been supporters of this site. They were the ones that helped us get the funding as a state agency to acquire the building in 1971. And they have helped us with this rehabilitation. We've gone in and redone floors and walls and the ceiling, the, the, the roof, the windows, the exterior, um, re- mortar pointing, all this stuff that needs to be done on the outside and the inside of the building. And after that rehabilitation was done, we placed lots of period furniture. It's part of the museum's collections in there. You can also see the Grinter family Bibles, some photographs. You can see a quilt that Annie Grinter made herself. And uh, so these events, like the spring garden party and the croquet tournament, uh, we have a quilt show that takes place in the spring. It's very popular in the fall to participate in the Apple Fest, where the Grinter friends make the, the Grinter family recipe apple butter. And there's a lot of traditions that people who are really close to the site have embraced for several years. But now we're kind of opening up to the larger Kansas City to communi- community to see this hidden treasure. All right, Teresa, thanks for telling us about the events at Grinter Place. Thanks for letting us share about this hidden treasure. I'm Merle Riedel with the answer to today's Kansas quiz. Who were the three brothers that designed the self-propelled harvester and founded a company that is today the leading manufacturer of ag equipment? The answer is the Baldwin brothers. Not Alec, William, and Stephen, but Curtis, George, and Ernest. Raised in Finney County, Kansas, the brothers owned a machine shop and fancied themselves inventors. They made a name for themselves in the 1920s by building a machine that combined the harvester and the thresher. 
Today, their company, Gleaner, is a division of Agco, or Alice Gleaner Company, and their harvesters are an icon of Kansas wheat fields. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hi. And Director of Education, Mary Madden. Hello. Today, we acknowledge the 150th anniversary of the Civil War's start by connecting William Allen White to the Articles of Secession, a set of documents that legally severed the South from the United States during the Civil War. Mary, could you give us a little background on the Articles of Secession? Sure. The Articles of Secession are actually comprised of multiple declarations issued by southern states prior to the Civil War. Secession is a political process from which one region separates from another. From the Confederacy, to former Soviet countries, to Quebec, secession movements are constant. In fact, I think there was actually a secession movement in Kansas in the 1990s. I think it's ongoing. (laughs) There's always somebody's always wanting out. Yeah, but yeah, since many consider secession to be treason by another name, legal reasoning must be provided. South Carolina attempted that when it issued the, quote, <laughs> Declaration of the Immediate Causes Which Induce and Justify the Secession of South Carolina from the Federal Union. <laughs> but I wouldn't even want to make an acronym out of that. <laughs> no, no. It was published on December 24, 1860, making a, a nice uh, Christmas ex- Christmas expression yeah, that's there. Fun. Mm-hmm. This document was actually preceded by an earlier South Carolina ordinance of secession and followed by another one. So I guess they had to say it like three times because it was mm-hmm. very important. Yeah. Or they just really liked writing big legal documents. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Menninger, a South Carolina lawyer, I probably said his name wrong there. That's all right. <laughs> who later became the Confederate Secretary of the Treasury, actually wrote the declaration that resulted in the secession. Instead of asserting the violation of states' rights, however, this declaration spent more time discussing the Union's failure to enforce fugitive slave laws. Right, so for all those people out there who debate that it's about about state, states' rights over a slavery, read the secession, yeah. read the secession declaration. It mm-hmm. doesn't talk about states' rights. And by January of 61, South Carolina would be joined by Alabama, Mississippi, and Texas, each issuing similar declarations of secession. I'm surprised Texas didn't just say, you know what? Forget you guys. We don't want to be North. We don't want to be South. We just want to be Texas. Right. Just legally speaking, maybe they didn't even have to secede. Maybe they said, uh, we didn't really join to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, that really, that's part of their history, and I think they yeah. still think of themselves that way. <laughs> yeah, I think they like to secede now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you, Mary. Uh, and now to the game. As a contestant, Mary, you're going to hear two chains of connection between William Allen White, the small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, uh, to the Articles of Secession. Uh, you, miss, you must pick the true six degrees of William Allen White from the false. Nikayla, you go first. I know. It's crazy intense, isn't it? (laughs) My reputation is on the line. I know it. Okay. It won't hurt, I swear. Okay. So, as Mary mentioned, that really long declaration of the immediate causes, blah, 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 um, (laughs) was written by a lawyer named Christopher Memminger. And Memminger was apparently a genius. He entered college at 12, graduated at 16, and passed the bar exam at age 22. I believe he was born in Germany, too, and kind of adopted. He he was, yeah. His mom passed away when he was young. He was kind of an orphan, and he was taken 
um, under the wing of a man who was a lawyer and kind of set him on the path. So, um, because of his intelligence and support of the secession movement, Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederate States of America, selected Memminger to be the CSA Secretary of the Treasury. Well, Jefferson Davis held the position of president of the CSA from 1861 until the Confederacy surrendered in 1865. He was charged with treason, captured, and imprisoned. Like any important public official, Davis had a group of bodyguards who protected him from threats on his life. And one of these guards was a soldier named Joseph M. Lindsay, who was the father-in-law of William Allen White. Dum, dum, dum. And in his autobiography, White um, described going to uh, his, his future wife, Sally's father-in-law, this Joseph Lindsay, um, to ask for her hand in marriage. And, and he said, so I went down to the stockyards, and he and I probably had the most embarrassed moments of our lives. Okay. So there you so go. There you go. Solution so, one. So the declaration to basically to Jefferson Davis, to his bodyguard, who is... William Allen White. Supposedly William Allen White's father-in-law. Right. right. Okay, whatever. Uh-huh. All right, now me. Uh, with the secession movement in full swing, James Chestnut Jr., the U.S. senator from South Carolina, found himself without a job. He soon found work drafting the new Confederate Constitution and serving as Jefferson Davis's aide. His wife, Mary Boykin Chestnut... Beautiful name. <laughs> Spent the war traveling with her husband James and bore witness to several major, major events in the Civil War, which she chronicled in a diary. In 1939, Chestnut's diary surfaced. William Alla, William Alla White, along with several members of the Book of the Month Club, acquired rights to the diary and sought to its publication. Along with being awarded the Pulitzer Prize, Ken Burns used Chestnut's diary extensively as part of his landmark documentary, The Civil War. Oh, these are both plausible. (laughs) He said this wouldn't be hard. I'm going with Merle. Wah, wah, wah. Oh, <laughs> Actually, so the close. more ludicrous is the more believable. Yeah, the, uh, that's true. William L. White's father-in-law was a bodyguard for Jefferson Davis. Yes, he was a Kentuckian. And mine, mine is pretty, it's very close. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary Chestnut did write a diary. Her husband yeah. was a former U.S. Senator for South Carolina. It was used in Ken Burns' film, but William L. White had nothing to do with the publication of it. All right, Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? You bet. For our next episode, we attempt to connect William Allen White to the Boston Marathon. Held annually since 1897, this 26.2-mile event hosted by the city of Boston is arguably the most famous human racing event in the world. So come back in two weeks when we connect William Allen White to the Boston Marathon. Did White once use the Boston Marathon as a capstone event for a rigorous six-month train-up? Or did he sit in a... Did you ever see William Allen White? Or did he sit in a cushy press box and finish at the finish line eating donuts? Find out in two weeks. That one I could answer. <laughs> Run fast for your mother. That concludes episode 132, Magic Seeds. If you would like to see images of the bottle that contains turkey red wheat, go to our website, kshs.org, or visit Kansas Memory our online repository of digital images. In the next episode, Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin and I examine a set of embroidered flower sacks. During World War I, the citizens of Belgium found themselves in a desperate position. 
occupying German troops stole their food, and the British naval blockade prevented more from arriving. Find out how Kansas led the relief effort, and why Belgians thanked them with embroidered flour sacks. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Real stories.